Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit us at perennialleader.com. Greetings and welcome. I am Joshua. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington, the author of Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Dr. Pennington is an associate professor of New Testament Interpretation and Director of Research Doctoral Studies at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. In this episode, we discuss philosophy, happiness, humility, the Beatitudes, emotions, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Dr. Jonathan Pennington. All right, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. Well, I really appreciate you taking time today. I really enjoyed the book as we were kind of discussing about a few minutes ago. And I love how you touched on so many different philosophies throughout it. And the first question I had is, how in the world did you write this without it being four and 500 pages long? (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, something I'm very happy about because actually the last couple of books I've written, I wanted to write a shorter book and I kept writing really long books. Um, So my life is a very happy combination of academic work as well as pastoral and connection with people work. And I have lived in these two worlds for a long time. And so I do a lot of traveling and speaking and speaking at my own church and all that. And then when I sit down to write, I have kept writing really long books. And so this was my goal for this book is to finally write a book that wasn't 350 pages long. So <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I did. So thanks. Yeah, you did a great job. I think thanks. you really found the sweet spot on it. How was the process of, of researching and in writing this thing? It, it comes through as the as the reader, like you really had a had a blast searching for wisdom wherever you could find it. No, it's beautiful. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I often, you know, describe this book and actually the last couple of books I've been able to write as when I was working on something, I got to another lily pad and that enabled me to see the next lily pad to jump at uh, as a frog, I guess. Or maybe, you know, as I was going down one street, it's once I got to a corner, I saw, oh, I want to go this way now. And so this book is really the culmination of many years of being a Matthew scholar. That's what I've had the great privilege and joy to work in the Gospel of Matthew a lot and teach in that. And then that kind of narrowed down to the Sermon on the Mount. I do a lot of work in the Sermon on the Mount. And it was particularly in the book right before this called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, that book was about a 10-year journey of of coming to see how the Sermon on the Mount functions in Christianity as a piece of wisdom that's really inviting us to find the true flourishing life only in Christ's kingdom through Jesus, the revelation of God. And so after I'd finished that book and a lot of stuff had kind of come together for me personally and in my teaching and understanding, I realized, okay, I need to write a book that again is shorter, more accessible, and takes this idea of that God really cares about our flourishing in a very paradoxical way because it involves suffering, it involves discipline, but that God really cares about 
our human flourishing and reshaping us into his image fully that this book really came from that. And it was a blast to write. I mean, I honestly, I, I'm very proud of this book in the sense that I feel like I did finally turn the corner on writing in a really, a lot more fun way and a lot more kind of who I am in terms of like drawing in as, as you know, from reading it, you know, my little pony to wicked to Ron Swanson to, Socrates to Seneca, you know, it's kind of, that's how, that's who I am. I like, like a lot of different things. And I was really glad to finally write a book where it all kind of came together. So I'm glad you enjoyed it too. So. Yeah. Great. Uh, speaking of lily pads, I wanted to go a, a number of lily pads back and, and touch on, on your background a bit. I see you have a PhD in new Testament studies, as you said, with a focus on, on the gospel of Matthew I'm curious, what led you to to that particular gospel initially? My whole life is just a happy providence that only makes sense in, in hindsight. Uh, yeah, so I was a convert to Christianity as an 18-year-old at a university uh, through Campus Crusade, as it was called back in those days. And, you know, I ended up going to seminary in Chicago and just had a great experience at Trinity. As that time went on, I just, I thought I was going to, go on and do a PhD in Pauline studies, which was kind of more the topic of uh, the hot topic in the late nineties and early two thousands when I was in that world. But I just stumbled upon a little aspect of Greek in Matthew, particularly the word for heaven in Matthew. I happened to notice when I was teaching Greek one year, it was had some oddities to it in Matthew's use of the Greek word for heaven. And so I ended up putting together a dissertation proposal to go study with this very famous New Testament scholar in Scotland named Richard Bauckham on what we call Second Temple Jewish Apocalyptic Literature, which is quite a mouthful, but that just basically means a lot of the literature that was written between the two Testaments by Jewish people that is kind of the background for a lot of the New Testament. And that's what I thought I was going to study. And as I got into the project more, we were living in Scotland. I was, you know, just sitting in the library every day. It kind of evolved into being more about Matthew and the idea of how he uses heaven and earth language. And so I didn't plan out to be a Gospels guy or a Matthew guy, but I'm so thankful to God because it's really who I am. I love stories. I'm the son of an English professor and I, I spend most of my time reading novels. I always joke. I'm just a new Testament scholar to support my novel reading habit. So I, I, uh, I'm so thankful to God that I ended up getting to focus on a kind of narrative portion of Holy Scripture and to learn how to read stories. And I have an earlier book you may have seen called reading the gospels wisely, which is really, again, my sort of working out, how to interpret the the narrative portions of the Bible, particularly the Gospels. So, yeah, it's just a happy providence. I'm very thankful. So, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that background. I was I was hoping we could start around the goal of the book before you sat down and you know really wrote the first word. What was the uh, what was the goal behind the book? Like I mentioned, it was related to coming to see Christianity in a kind of bigger and deeper way than just a religion, but as really a philosophy of life, which is what really the goal of the book was. And that was the result of this work I had done again in the Sermon on the Mount and recognizing that, that one of the key contexts in which we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels 
is that in the ancient world, people were really thoughtful, the ancient Greek and Roman and Jewish worlds, people were really, really thoughtful about what the meaning of life was and how to live well. And that's what the whole philosophical tradition was really about. It was not like we think of philosophy today as this, you know, when I leave the room, does a chair still exist, you know, kind of question, which is fine. Uh, you can ask those kind of questions, but Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and others, they were very practical people and they had big thoughts about the nature of the universe and all these kind of things, but always for the purpose of how do we really live well? And as I was kept studying on the background of the Sermon on the Mount and came to kind of give myself an education in that kind of world of ancient philosophy, that's what really led me to kind of see the Christian faith in that context more and to recognize the Bible is really trying to answer those same questions. It is answering those same questions in the very profound and sophisticated and, you know, as a Christian, I would say the ultimate true way as divine revelation to answer the big questions of life. Like, what is the nature of reality? How do we know things? What's the good, the true, and the beautiful? How do we live together in relationships? And so that was really the motivation behind putting this book together. But maybe I, I forgot your question. What was your question? Did I answer your question? <laughs> no, I, I think so. It was, um, and we've been talking ab about it a bit from the from the start. And as I said before we got started, I'm a bit of a book nerd, and I've never really read a book like this that looked at Jesus also as a philosopher in that lens. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Yeah. <laughs> well, either I'm crazy or I'm onto something, but actually this is, uh, this is really a, the subtitle begins with the word rediscovering, and that's very intentional because I'm not at all claiming that like I've discovered something that no one else has ever seen or something far from it. I'm really trying to help Christians rediscover something that was a very common idea in the ancient world. Not only in the New Testament itself, I'm trying to show that the New Testament and the, and the Old Testament, the whole Christian Bible presents itself as a philosophy of life, but also when you start going right, the first century, second century, third century, all the way on of early Christianity, they regularly talked about Jesus as a philosopher. They really emphasized that he was a teacher in the sense of a wisdom teacher who made disciples, and really one of the ways you see it is in sacred art that Jesus is regularly depicted as a philosopher. You know, when we think of him, we think of the robes as like, I don't know why we think Jesus wore robes, but the reason he's depicted as wearing robes is because, I mean, I think he probably did, but it's because in early sacred art, he's a philosopher. I mean, he's got the haircut of a philosopher. He's standing usually in a certain posture. He's got the kind of robes and mantle. And and so all I'm trying to do is say, hey, let's let's rediscover this aspect of Jesus. It's not all he is. He's Savior King, God incarnate, all those other things. But I think we've lost something by losing this notion of Jesus as a philosopher that I'm trying to help us rediscover. That's it. And you seem to have a lot of appreciation and, and respect for various philosophies that that you write about throughout. Where do you think that that comes from? I mean, it is who I am, I think, but it's also something that I feel like I've grown into. I think, first of all, we don't have to be anxious when we read widely to tap back into the 
pre-modern, especially the, you know, the ancient Christian tradition of someone like Augustine, I think what you find in most of the church fathers is that they were very happy to learn whatever they could and re-understand everything in the world through a Christian lens because the whole world is God's and all the wisdom of the world is God's wisdom. Some traditions are more true than others. And of course, we believe Christianity is the full truth, right? But as you may recall from the book, I have a little picture of the elephant, you know, the famous elephant <laughs> and the philosophers uh, where, you know, the old image that's often used against Christianity is that, you know, you have different philosophers or thinkers are touching different parts of the elephant and they think it's one thing uh, and they all think it's something different. I think earliest Christianity really understood itself to say, hey, there's a lot of wisdom in Socrates. There's a lot of wisdom in all kinds of traditions. They're not the full truth, but that we can plunder the Egyptians. That's a way that Augustine and others talk about, that we can learn from other traditions and understand the partial refracted wisdom that other people in the image of God have. It's never going to be fully true. That's why we need Holy Scripture to guide us and shape our understanding. But but we can learn. And the, the metaphor I use, I think I use it in the book, but I know I talk about this a lot, is I view the world as a forest or as a lot of different forests and that there's a lot of good trees in every kind of forest. And some forests are better than others, you know, um, some traditions and some ideas. But that what I want to do is build beautiful things by gathering wood from every forest that God has made, recognizing that there's only one fully true forest, right, which is the is the Christian truth. And so I want to gather wood and understand what I can from the refraction of God's truth in the world, and, but then evaluate it all by Holy Scripture and being led by the Spirit, try to build a house of understanding that recognizes the goodness and beauty that God has refracted throughout the world. So I think it's a beautiful and enjoyable way to live. It has an intellectual virtue to it of humility and teachability with still a strong conviction of the, of the centrality and the exclusivity of the Christian faith as being the true, truest truth that we can understand other things through. Yeah, I love that. I think that is helpful. I appreciate that. When it comes to to happiness, flourishing, I, I've heard you kind of mention, but what can ancient philosophies kind of teach us about happiness and, and maybe the Christian philosophy, you know, kind of some differences? Yeah. So, again, when you think about the ancient traditions, I think in the Old Testament as well as the Greek traditions, the Roman traditions – they all really care about this question. I mean, I know the word happy in English is very thin now and very unhelpful, and probably especially Christians don't like to use the word happy because it is kind of a weak word in English now. It means kind of temporary emotional positivity or something. So it's not the best word, and that's why I and a lot of other people use flourishing or thriving. But the Old Testament version of that is shalom. I mean, this is a, a very biblical idea of, of being in a place and a situation and relationships to God and others that are happy and flourishing and thriving and productive and fertile, you know, mentally and physically and agriculturally and everything. And so that's in the Old Testament. And then it continues on into the New Testament. What's different is that in the New Testament, Jesus really 
forces us to kind of think in paradoxical terms that happiness is not just found in everything going well for us, but in fact, if you look at the statements of happiness or beatitudes that are in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you see that it's pretty shocking, actually, that he says that true happiness or flourishing can be found in the midst of suffering and difficulty and poverty of spirit and mourning and being maligned and misrepresented. And in fact, that in a paradoxical way is often a way that we find true happiness in God as we we have our sensibilities and our hearts retrained through suffering, right? And that ultimately our ultimate happiness will come when Christ returns with his kingdom. So I guess the point is that these are universal human questions in ancient Near Eastern cultures, Mesopotamian cultures, Egyptian cultures, Jewish cultures, in ancient philosophical traditions, Greek and Roman. And nobody gives the exact same answer, but everybody's asking the same question. What does it mean to truly flourish? And I, I, my argument of the book is the Bible has like not only really thoughtful question, answers to that question, it's got the best answers <laughs> you know, to that question that it really is very thoughtful answers to the question. And of course, as a Christian, I believe it's also the true answer, right? But even just kind of from a comparative standpoint, when you look at the Bible's answers to the great philosophical questions, they're remarkably sophisticated and realistic, I think. You brought up the Beatitudes in the Sermon of the Mount. Based on your extensive background and expertise, I was wondering if maybe you could speak to a bit of maybe the the first first few lines and kind of modern language of how you would how you would kind of explain that and kind of uh, give some commentary on it. I teach and talk about this all the time. It's a joy. It is a weird kind of thing that in English we don't have a good word to translate what's happening in the Beatitudes. Every other language I'm aware of has a really good word for this. The Hebrew word for it is asher. The Greek word for it is makarios. The Latin word for it is beatus, and that's why we call them the Beatitudes. And all those in Spanish, every language I'm aware of has this kind of word, which is a, a word that is describing a state of happiness or flourishing that one person kind of says to another, usually like a father to a son or a teacher to a student or a sage or a philosopher to a disciple. And it's where you look, you say to the person you're trying to teach, look, son, or look, student, when you look at that kind of situation over there, that's what true happiness really looks like. And that's what we call a macarism or a beatitude. It's not just that Christianity has these. These are all over the place. I, you know, just this morning was reading Fred Rogers, really look, you know, Mr. Rogers' little book of macarisms that he wrote a long time ago. Every philosopher, Oprah, you name it, you know, you just find quotes. Everybody's got like little pithy sayings that kind of give you a vision for how to live well, right? Whether it's CrossFit or Peloton or, you know, whatever it is. I used to do T25 Beachbody. You know, it was what I can't remember now what it was, but, you know, Sean T, he had his own little macarisms. Everybody's got macarisms, right? And that's what the Beatitudes are. Their statements of saying Jesus, the wisest person that ever lived, God incarnate, is saying, if you want to know what true flourishing looks like, I'm going to tell you. 
and I'm going to give you nine of them in a row to start my whole teaching in the New Testament, nine statements in a row of what the Beatitudes are. And what's shocking about them is that they're all unexpected. That's the most shocking thing about the Beatitudes. They're, they're negative images, poverty of spirit, mourning, being merciful means you give up, you know, you forgive people who have wronged you, being a peacemaker, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. These are all negative states. And then, you know, being persecuted and maligned and misrepresented. That's the shock of Jesus, the teacher, is that he's saying, Jesus, the sage, the philosopher, I'll tell you what happiness is, but it's not what you expect. It's only found through this topsy-turvy relationship with God. So that's how I would interpret the Beatitudes. It seems like it's also kind of a good recipe for friendship and healthy relationships as, as well. Where does that come into play? So how the book is structured, as you may have figured out from reading it, is the first half is just telling the story of how Christianity really is a philosophy of life, that the Old and New Testaments make sense when you look at them through the lens of offering a true philosophy of life. And then in the second half of the book, I just tackle three of the big topics in ancient philosophy, emotions, relationships, and happiness. And in those chapters, there's two chapters dedicated to each of those. I talk about what ancient philosophers said about that topic and then what the Bible says about it. And so on the relationships one, it's a truly remarkable thing that the ancient philosophers thought a ton about all kinds of relationships, marital relationships, yes, political relationships for sure. But the thing they cared the most about were friendships and that they saw, if you look at the Aristotelian tradition, especially in the Stoic tradition too, they really emphasized that you'll only find true meaning in life when you have really great relationships usually with people of the same gender um, in the sense of a friend, a non-romantic relationship or to use C.S. Lewis's discussion of this in his famous book, The Four Loves, not just Eros, E-R-O-S relationships, but philia relationships. So there's different kinds of love, romantic love versus kind of friendship love. And that was a key topic in ancient philosophy. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking to us. You think philosophy, you know, that doesn't sound like something about friendship, but they realized that you're never going to be truly happy if you don't have meaningful, virtuous friendships. And so that is a really interesting thing to then go and think about how the Bible talks about that. And there's more about friendship in the Bible than we realize. I don't think it's the primary relational metaphor in the Bible. I think family ends up being a bigger metaphor for the Bible, especially the idea that we're all called brothers and sisters right, of a father. So that ends up being maybe the primary one. But I do think the Bible has a lot to say about friendship, including Jesus calling his disciples friends. That takes on a lot more meaning when you put it into this ancient context of the this great relationship of friendship with each other. You mentioned em- emotions as a as something that was thought about and discussed and, and debated. Could you speak to some of maybe the differences in the in the school of thought around emotions? Yeah, that's one of my favorite topics. And I've, uh, in addition to reading the book, which hopefully your listeners will pick up, uh, the I also have a few times I've lectured on this that people can watch or listen to if you go to jonathanpennington.com under resources. And it's called Educating Your Emotions. And that's what those chapters are called in the book too. And it is, again, 
I, it was one of those things I was like so surprised to learn about that you'd think philosophy, what does that have to do with emotions? And it turns out that's like one of their main topics because again, philosophy in the ancient world was about how to live well. And so they recognized you've got to figure out what your emotions are because they make us do all kinds of stuff and how to, how to handle them. And there were different philosophies about what emotions were and therefore how to handle them. That we often, you know, speaking in generalities, there's the Platonic tradition, which primarily views emotions as the opposite of reason and something to be kind of controlled and that are really difficult to control. And, you know, it's more nuanced than that, but that's kind of the idea that emotions are something that's the opposite of thinking. The Aristotelian tradition, so the Aristotle tradition, is I think much closer to what seems to be to me true and a biblical view that emotions are an important part of being human and they are affectable by cognition, but they, by thinking, but they do need to be trained. They need to be trained in certain ways uh, for you to flourish. And then what becomes the dominant tradition kind of is a sub take on that. It's not identical to the Aristotelian tradition. That's what becomes what we call stoicism which really becomes the dominant kind of practical flaw. You know, the Stoics were the Oprah's and the Jordan Peterson's and the, of, of the ancient world. Like they had a huge influence and the Stoics really emphasize that emotions are controllable certainly. And that really you need to learn to control them and not be overly affected by them if you want to be happy. And so this is why we still use the word stoic to refer to someone who's kind of non-emotional. Like we use someone, if you someone to say, you know, very, they're very stoic, that means they're non-emotional. That's not entirely fair to the stoic tradition because they weren't anti-emotions. They recognized that emotions were an important part of being human, but they, they put so much emphasis on you'll never be happy unless you learn to really be responsible and control your emotions. And I think there's a lot of good in that. I think it's, I'm not a stoic ultimately because I do think there are some fundamental flaws in the stoic system, particularly concerning hope for the future. I don't think it's a realistic enough view of the world compared to Christianity about the reality of suffering in the li in life that is real, that you shouldn't just unthink or something. Stoicism kind of ends up remarkably like Buddhism, I think, in the sense that you kind of, the key to happiness is to disconnect from uncomfortable things and make them unreal. I just don't think that's realistic fully. But what I really like about the Stoic tradition is that it does put a lot of onus on us to be responsible with our emotions. And so they'll say, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and others will say things like, it's not the situation that is upsetting you. It's your interpretation of the situation. And, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that, you know, I mean, that's kind of good advice that I would, and I do say to my children, you know, I, okay, this situation happened. I say to myself too, you feel upset about it. Let's pay attention to why you're upset and, you know, think through why you're upset and process it, you know? So that's a really kind of good, helpful thing. I don't think it's, again, ultimately as, as uh, robust as a Christian understanding, which would say some similar things, you know, prayer and reflection and confession and rethinking, you know, as part of the Christian tradition. But all that say, emotions are really practical issue. They're a really practical philosophical issue that are helpful to learn about. 
No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I'd love to um, follow that path a little bit in terms of the practical philosophy. It seems like Stoicism is popular today based on some of the practical advice and simple formulas. I, I think of, of Seneca in, in terms of emotion of, of there's an event, there's a reaction, and in the middle, there's our judgment or opinion. It seems like, you know, there could be a, a melding or, you know, a merging in terms of that judgment or opinion. If there's a Christian forgiveness and love that that you know, give you that pause to to bring in some of those Christian virtues. What are your What are your thoughts on on some of that? That's super great. Yeah. And so you know, if you're if you're in the leadership world, which it sounds like you are, and the business part of that too, Stoicism is very popular. I mean, and it's great. I mean, Ryan Holiday. You know, I read the Daily Stoic. You know, it's like a little devotional <laughs> of Stoics. I even have the Stoicism coins. If you've ever seen those, they're like these little coins that have uh, that a friend of mine, you know, some friends of mine, got me as a gift after I talked on this someplace. Uh, <laughs> that you know reminds you, Amor Fati. You know, love love the fates that, you know, whatever happens to you, that's the key to happiness. So I love all that stuff. It's really great. And I was just talking to a, another elder in my church, who's a really successful entrepreneur. And he was telling me that, yeah, in the, especially in the subset of the business world, that's the entrepreneurial world, which is, you know, a little different than other kinds of business. He said, they're all about the Stoics. Like it's really, it's really big. And so I, and I think it's cause it really does help, you know, it helps you be responsible for your own emotions. It helps you be, take responsibility in your life. You, you know, don't take a victim mindset about things that, you know, and leaders have to do that. Leaders have to be responsible, you know, but I do think that there is a, a way that Christianity can and should be injected in that, that would provide a, even a more, robust sort of philosophy of life. And I, I jokingly call it Christ Stoicism, you know, trademark Jonathan Pennington 2020. Uh, but I, I've wanted to title a book that, but my publishers and my wife said, you will never sell a book with a the Christ Stoicism in it, you know, but, but I think it's a very clever little phrase of a kind of taking the best of the Stoic tradition and recognizing that it, the good in it is the responsibility, et cetera. But that again, it doesn't have hope. It, which is very biblical, the, the future orientation. At the end of the day, it's kind of an, an a-realism, an irrealism. There's not, you, you know, it's all just in your head. Again, like you said, you just separate from reality. And I don't think it can really resource justice and compassion in the way that Christianity can. Now, I don't want to misrepresent the tradition. I'm sure if Ryan Holiday were on here, he'd say, no, we care about justice. And, and I don't, so I don't want to misrepresent Stoicism in any way. But I don't think at the end of the day, without a kind of future-oriented metaphysic that is based in a divine being who has moral standards, I don't think there's any way, this is true for any philosophy or religion, I don't think there's any way to really justify anything other than self-servingness at the end of the day. Why not just live for yourself, even if it means you're nice to people for, to get for yourself? If you don't have a metaphysic, a, a philosophy of the entire world that is bigger than just about my personal life, it's about God is real and is going to establish the world in a certain way to come. I think that metaphysic alone can really resource living well now in a way that other philosophies can't. That's what I'd say. So, yeah. And you also write about Jesus in emotion. Could you speak to that a bit in some of the examples that we have? 
Yeah, I think it's important to recognize Jesus is a full human and he has all kinds of emotions, right? And that that's he's the ultimate example of why emotions are not a bad thing, but they are part of what it means to be made in God's image and to be human. And that there are certain emotions that we need to cultivate and other emotions that we need to educate out of ourselves, you know, never perfectly, but fully. So if you look at Jesus' emotions, compassion for those in need is for sure the most highlighted of his emotions. And anger is the second one, although his anger is exclusively against unrighteousness. It's not petty or self-serving. He's angry at people who aren't compassionate, <laughs> compassionate, you know, so it all kind of goes together. And then if you look at the the way that Christianity is talked about in the epistles or the rest of the New Testament, there's a lot of emotions that are important to cultivate and others to get rid of. Love, if you think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, that includes an emotion. It's not just a verb. It, it, it means something emotional. Joy, peace, that's, you know, talking about a kind of tranquility. Ataraxia is the Greek word for it that the Stoics would use. Patience, that, that involves a certain kind of emotional centeredness. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. You know, they're not all directly emotions, but you really can't do anything of those without some kind of emotional awareness and and self-education and emotional control, really. We shouldn't get rid of emotions from our theology or practice, nor should we say that whatever you feel is what you should do. You know, again, I think the Bible is very sophisticated in recognizing the good of emotions and also recognizing the necessity of training them in certain ways. It seems like emotions are pretty complex as well. You actually reference a movie in the book that I actually watched, Hector in the oh, Search I'm for so Happiness. Glad. I hope you liked it. If you didn't like it, don't tell me because I'll be I'll, I'll end no. this call right here because I love it. No, I hope you liked no. it. it. It was great. And it, it reminds me when I think of this righteous anger and, and compassion towards the end when you know the emotion. It's it's not just one. It's a it's a mixture and and often a melting pot of complexity and different emotions that are that are at play. Yeah, that that movie is you know it's Simon Pegg who's great, but it's not a movie that a lot of people know about, and it's based on some French books that I guess are not quite as good as the movie is in this case. They're a little bit more. Maybe from what I understand, I haven't read the French books, but from what they they are in translation too. But from what I understand, they're a little bit more maybe pedantic or shallow. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. But but the movie I think is really great, and what it shows at the end is that yeah, happiness or flourishing, which is what we're talking about, is not found in just the positive emotions. It's actually found in embracing the wholeness of our humanity, and I think the movie that includes fear especially sadness, grief, joy, love, loss. And I think that's what the message of that movie is, that I I cry every time I watch it. I've watched it many times uh, just because it, it feels very real. Like that, yeah, that is what it means to be human. Yeah, there's joy. I have great joys. I have great friends. And there's loss. And there's there's disappointment. And there's regret. And there's mistakes. And our lives are very complicated emotionally. And to embrace that as what it means to be human rather than to just try to say all bad emotions are bad and good emotions are good, it's actually 
it's part of what it means to be human. So I, I'm glad you watched it. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I sure did. And, and it's also what you said a few minutes ago as well of emotions being cultivated. You know, he had to cultivate those and, and actually kind of get on the path towards that. How about for any parents listening that are kind of interested in, in connecting this, this lens of Jesus also being a philosopher and a teacher on this f- way of life? What are your kind of thoughts for young people? I'd say even before I came to talk about Christianity in this way, I was stumbling towards it. I have six kids, ages currently 24 down to 16. And so I've had a little bit of parenting experience. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things in my very, very imperfect parenting, though, that I think I tried to do well at points, and I think if my kids were on here, they'd, I think they'd say the same thing, is that I would often talk to them about what's really going to give them life, what's really going to be life-giving to them. So in other words, when my kids would screw up in different ways, you know, which they certainly did, you know, relationally or sins of various sorts or errors, rather than primarily approaching them with this sort of right, wrong, heavy handed, right, wrong mentality, even though there's clearly wrong things, you know, it would be as they get older, I'm not talking about two year olds, I'm talking about like 12 year olds and beyond. You know, I would often just talk to them about there's different ways we can live in the world. There's different ways that we can inhabit the world. And some of them really give us life. And some of us, some of them will give us flourishing. And a lot of them were really not. And so son, you know, this thing that you did, or this habit that has been found out and has caught up with you. There's a right and wrong element, but what I want to really appeal to you is this way of being in the world is not going to give you the life that you long for now or eternity. So to kind of frame with your children wisdom, and this is what Proverbs does, right? You look at Proverbs, the first eight or nine chapters, it's a father saying to his son, consider these different ways of dishonest gain and hanging out with bad friends and stealing and prostitution or what you know whatever none of these are going to give you life the life that you long for so one of the things i've really tried to do with parenting that i think this book is part of that whole world is is to just appeal to young people with what we all long for we all long to truly experience human flourishing and just to kind of lean into that and don't act like that's not what's motivating us that is what's motivating all of us lean into it and help young people think start to think about the world in terms of ways that will bring them life and ways that won't i love the the integration of flourishing into this and in something in christianity and in life and there's no shortage of books on on suffering you know where does suffering come into play in flourishing and kind of navigating life yeah that's such a thoughtful question yeah i don't have a definitive answer, but I have thought about that. And I I mentioned a little bit, the Beatitudes have this paradoxical element in them, which is played out in the rest of Christianity. I think you see this in Paul's teaching. You see it in first Peter, you see it in James. It's all over the place. Hebrews. I mean, you really can't, you, you see it's all throughout the Christian understanding and into the church fathers as well, that in this paradoxical way, suffering and is not the opposite of flourishing. It's often the means to flourishing. Now, the trick there is to, this is, this is a, a subtle but really important difference, to not in any way see suffering as inherently good and in any way, you know, to 
think that it's okay to let other people suffer or say, well, it's good for them or, you know, nothing like that. This is the paradox is that suffering is always bad and we should always seek to alleviate it, period. And in a paradoxical way, suffering is one of the primary means in which we come to find true happiness. I mean, just think about that experientially. You know, you think of how failure, you think of this in the business and leadership world, you know, a lot of people recognize that failure, which includes suffering emotionally and financially and others, is really absolutely necessary for a thriving business at some point. I mean, you probably know more about this world than I do. I'm sure you do. But I think that, you know, like we just know this is true, especially as you get older, that that suffering is often the means towards happiness. And I think Christianity has a very clear view on that, that that the faith, the Christian faith is medicinal, that the that a big part, I would even say the main goal of Christianity is to reshape humans into the fullness of humanity, to become fully flourishing humans. That's the end goal of Christianity. The Greek phrase for it is a teleos on air, a complete person or a whole person. And so suffering is part of that. Even Jesus, who was sinless, the book of Hebrews says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. <laughs> I mean, that's such an odd verse from a Christian perspective that's right there in the Bible, that even a sinless person had to learn something through suffering. And so I don't, I, I think it's really important that we start reframing this in our minds. Suffering and flourishing are not opposites. Suffering is bad, but in the providence and mystery of God, it's the most common means by which we come to experience true happiness. And you mentioned a bit throughout the book, and you just discussed this paradox and, and nuance, and there's some complexity going on there. How do you see that kind of connecting with the spiritual path? It, it seems like it takes a bit of spiritual maturity to really start to really take that in. What advice might you have for people that are at, at different points on that spiritual path, maybe regarding paradox? It is part of human mental and spiritual development is to come to sort of embrace the paradox. I mean, that this is, you know, we can even, we know this even neurologically, as I often remind my students and children, our frontal lobes aren't even fully developed till we're 25, right? <laughs> and that's where complex thinking happens in this frontal lobe. And so it does take a while. Teenagers are very black and white thinkers. People in their 20s tend to be very black and white thinkers. This is why it's dangerous when they get too much theological education. <laughs> um, mostly joking, not entirely, though, that there is a, you know, it be, everything becomes super black and white. And frankly, some people never mature beyond that. You know, even biological age doesn't guarantee neurological maturity. Uh, the, you know, biological age, age prevents some neurological maturity from happening just because you, your brain is still developing. But even if you reach it, you can be 70 year old and still not be a nuanced thinker, right? And, and not embrace paradox, but you need to. I mean, that's the way of maturity. So I would say, you know, how do you do it? Well, I mean, it's, it's world experience, practicing the intellectual virtues of humility and teachability. It's reading widely and broadly embracing that there's something to learn from everyone. It's kind of some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, that that a key to intellectual maturity is is humility, really. Recognizing that you're that all of our knowing is limited. 
doesn't mean it's not true, but it's limited because we're creatures and we're bound in a time and place and a gender and a race. That means I can't understand anything fully. That's what it means to be a creature. Only God understands things fully. And to start with that posture of humility with conviction still, but humility is, is a really important part of coming to embrace paradox. And the Bible is full of it. Let's just look at the book of Job. You know, I mean, this is a great example of, and other stories that, that at the end of Job, it's not as if the answer is, oh, now I understand everything perfectly. It's when God shows up and he sees that he does, that really Job's growth moment is when he recognizes, I don't even understand this, right? Job's growth moment is not, oh, now I got it all figured out. It's, I need to shut my mouth because God knows everything and controls everything in a way that I thought I understood partially. I don't even understand that. Right. And so the, that's when his like moment happens. And so there, right there in the old Testament, you've got this very sophisticated, very long poetic story about epistemology, (laughs) about coming to know. And the answer is not definitiveness in the sense of like, now I understand everything, but humility is what really Job comes to. And I think that's the path. That's the path of the mature is the, is embracing our limits, even within clear convictions. I really appreciate that. That's, that's helpful. I want to be respectful of your time. So just a few wrap up closing questions here. How has writing the book maybe changed the way you, you live and think about life? Anything come to mind there? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, all the things I've been talking about, I mean, these, these have been, especially probably the emotions and the friendship. Those are probably the two biggest things I'm aware that this book really helped me in the reading and writing of it to just grow as a person and to live better. I would say the happiness question was kind of the previous book, the human flourishing that had a big impact on me, the Sermon on the Mountain Human Flourishing book, and those years of writing that, to kind of think more about happiness and embrace that. So I feel like that one was a, as being complicated and including a range of emotions. So I feel like that, I'm continuing to learn that, but I think the writing of this book in particular was thinking about emotions and friendship. Great. Well, thank you for your time today, and I, I appreciate you writing the book. I highly encourage everyone to pick up the book. Jesus, the Great Philosopher, Rediscovering the Wisdom Needed for the Good Life. Any other book recommendations that, that come to mind? Boy, I, I read so widely, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's uh, uh, well, there's, we'll just say the providence of God. Here's one by a friend of mine, Karen Swallow Pryor, if you know this one, On Reading Well. I just literally sitting right in front of me. That's a great, great book that has a lot of overlap with a lot of things I'm talking about here about how stories shape our character. There's one that I trust that that was meant to be sitting right there. So there you go. Well, great. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to, to learn more about your work? Yeah. So jonathanpennington.com. I'm also a pastor and I preach regularly and teach and here and everywhere. There you'll find lots of lectures, sermons, all kinds of things. We have a podcast where it's also stored as well called the Human Flourishing Podcast that my daughter runs for me very well. And there's hundreds of episodes of, or hundred over a hundred episodes, I should say, of sermons, lectures, things like that. So jonathanpennington.com is a great place. Great. And we'll link all of that in the show notes. Dr. Jonathan Pennington, I really appreciate your time and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.